You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. I like movies. Most of you know that. If I, if I could have my way, uh, we would end every night, Debbie and I, by watching a movie. And you're wondering, can there be that many movies? It doesn't matter. It's a movie. And I just like to watch movies. Now, if Debbie had her way, we would end it every night probably like by talking. And I know what you guys are thinking, and I'm just going to tell you from experience, talking about movies is not a loophole in that system. All right, she wants to talk about the relationship. Uh, the real problem actually is Debbie likes movies. We just like different kinds of movies. She likes movies that, where people get together in the end, they live happily ever after, there's a big bow on it. Like we watched Annie last night. That, that's the kind of movie that I think Debbie likes. Uh, I like movies that are heavy. I like movies that are kind of dark, uh, movies that don't resolve, right? No, there is no happy ending. There's just the loose ends of unraveled life at the end of the movie. That to me is a great film. These kinds of films, I think, uh, force us to deal with some hard realities in our world. I mean, those kinds of films speak more to the realities of what happened in Charleston, uh, you know, than Annie does, right? And in their own way, I think those kinds of films point us to Jesus, uh, because all, everything will only finally resolve in him. In that vein, in 2007, uh, the five movies that were up for Picture of the Year, 2007 was a really great year for me, because here's the five movies. It was Juno and Michael Clayton, both fine films, but here's the other three. No Country for Old Men, All right, a, a dark film about the, the destruction of rampant evil and how helpless we feel in the face of evil at times. The other film was Atonement. In this film, there's a lie and a cover-up. Uh, it's very different than No Country from All Men, but it is still the unraveling of a life. It's, it's, it's uh, heartbreaking. And the girl who lies in the film spends her life trying to atone for her sin. She, she rewrites the story, but at the end, she's left wondering, was that enough? And the implication is that no, it wasn't. She, she can never escape the guilt of her sin. The fifth movie um, that came out the year was There Will Be Blood. And the title is a promise. There will be blood in this film. And the reason there will be blood in this film is because it's the two main characters have an escalating conflict that develops throughout the film. One is an oil man and the other one's a preacher. They're both con artists. And the lusts for power and greed and money all of that means eventually this thing is going to culminate with some kind of fight, and there will be blood. And sure enough, at the end of the film, in a very intense scene, uh, the oil man takes a bowling pin and strikes the preacher on the head, and he goes down, and he starts beating him with it, and his blood is just splattered on the wall, and it's flowing across the floor of the bowling alley. And the oil man just sits down right next to the blood, he just sits there. And the last line in the film is, he says, I'm finished. None of these films resolve. You watch them and you are left with the weight and the heaviness and the destruction of wickedness and evil in our world. But if you take them all together, you can see where that story goes. Rampant evil a desperate need for atonement, 
the shedding of blood because of sin, and the mysterious final words, I'm finished. That's the story of the gospel. That's the story we're going to see powerfully illustrated here in Exodus 11 and 12 today. Exodus, as we've been saying, is history. This is real people in a really wicked world, rampant evil. And both the oppressors and the oppressed alike need atonement. And in this story, there is shedding of blood, and it all points us to Christ. Here's what we learn in this story. Because it tells us not just how Israel was saved, but how we must be saved. And the way they're saved and the way we're saved is the same, and it's the blood of a lamb. Now, that sounds strange, doesn't it? I think modern people, would, we would feel okay with that being you know, some sort of like really rich symbolism, but not like a literal sense, not like an actual animal sacrifice is how I'm made right with God. That, we don't like that. It's strange to our ears. But nevertheless, this is the message of the Bible. From Genesis forward, there is a promise, and the promise is there will be blood. There will be blood because sin and evil leads to death. But there will also be a blood that leads to life. This is what Exodus 11 and 12 tells us, that we are saved by the blood of a lamb. Now, listen, if you are not a Christian and you've been trying to get your mind around what it is we're talking about, who is God and how do we have a relationship with him, this is such a great text. Uh, It will definitely sound strange at first, but if you will open your heart and mind, you will see the beauty and the power of it. This is the very heart of the Christian message. And if you're a Christian, and if this story is familiar to you, I would offer you the same invitation, which is to open your hearts and minds to be renewed by it, to be stirred afresh uh, for the wonder and the glory that is the blood of the Lamb. As we look at this text, uh, we're going to see three things. The judgment of God, the mercy of God, and how these things come together in the Lamb of God. All right, so if you've got a Bible, open it up to Exodus 11. Uh, This is going to be pretty straightforward. We're going to walk through just sections of this uh, because I just want you to see it. So there's Bibles in front of you in the pews. If you want to grab one of those, open up to Exodus 11. We'll go through sections of 11 and 12 together. As you're turning there, just remind you, uh, as, as we begin to think about the judgment of God, this really began last week in Exodus 7 through 10, where we were looking at the plagues that came upon Egypt. And we looked at the first nine plagues last week. They're awful. I mean, the Nile turns to blood. Throughout the land, you got frogs and gnats and flies and boils and hail and locusts. And then the ninth plague is this three days of utter darkness. It says that it was a darkness that could be felt. It's terrible. And as we saw last week, each of these plagues is, is both a judgment and a warning. It's a judgment because in each of them, God is directly confronting, attacking even, the gods of Egypt. Each plague shows Egypt's gods' inability to save them. It exposes Egypt's idolatry of false gods. But each plague is also a warning because in every one, Pharaoh has a chance to let Israel go, to go out and worship their God, which is what they've asked to do. And, but each time, he doesn't let them go. He hardens his heart. And that leads us to the tenth plague. The tenth plague stands alone. It's the final judgment in this series of judgments. And it is 
devastating. It, it is so great and so awful that Pharaoh at the end will come out and beg Israel to get out. We first hear about this plague back in Exodus 4, so you don't have to turn there, but Exodus 4 gives us the context. This is when God had just called Moses, and he's about to send him back to Egypt, and this is what he tells him. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So God says in the beginning, in Exodus 4, this is where this thing is headed. Now, here God calls Israel his firstborn son. And in that culture, the firstborn son represented a lot. Uh, it, it was a place of privilege. The firstborn son got double the portion of inheritance. Ethan, it's not going to work like that in our family. Uh, it, it was a place of honor of special relationship, of privilege. And so when God says, Israel is my firstborn son, obviously it's a a nation, right? So he's saying, among the nations of the earth, Israel is my special people. They have a special relationship with me. It speaks to their place of privilege as God's chosen people. And with it, they have a very high calling to live in such a way that resembles or reflects their family identity with God. So remember, in Exodus 1... Pharaoh uh, decrees the murder of all male babies in Israel. Okay, so what God is saying here to Moses and what he tells them to say to Pharaoh is essentially this. Like, look, when you murdered the firstborn males of Israel, you weren't just killing Israelite kids. Those were my kids. That's why God is taking this so seriously. After the ninth plague, Pharaoh calls for Moses. Uh, this is in Exodus ten twenty four. This is all leading us up to 11. And he says to him, all right, go serve the Lord, but leave your flocks and your herds here. And Moses is like, well, I can't do that because we're going out to worship God. We're going to have to make sacrifices to God. And we don't know, you know, what kind of sacrifice we'll make until we get there, until he tells us. And so we've got to take our herds. See, Pharaoh wants collateral. He doesn't really want to let them go. And so when Moses says, no, we, ha- we have to take them, Pharaoh gets angry. And he says, no, I will not let you go. And then he even threatens Moses. He says, if the next time you see my face, you're going to die. You see how Pharaoh has these delusions of, of deity? Because like in Exodus 33, that's what God says to Moses. Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, well, you can't look at me. If anyone who sees my face will die. And Pharaoh purports himself to have that kind of glory. He exalts himself as God. And so the whole thing that's happening here in this judgment is that God is saying, no, I am God and I will not share my glory with another. So all of these plagues directed toward Egypt and their gods are just to show that Yahweh is the true God. All right, the conversation picks up in chapter 11, verse 4. This is a continuation of what was going on at the end of 10. Moses is threatened by Pharaoh. He says, If you see my face again, you're going to die. I imagine Moses sort of like wants to get out of there, and then he remembers, no, wait, I have this thing to say. He turns back and he says, hey, Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who's behind the handmill, all of the firstborn of the cattle 
There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes the distinction between Egypt and Israel, that Israel is the chosen people of the Lord, and that Egypt has sinned against them and their God. You know, in our culture, you know, we tend to think of the success of the individual. But in this culture, and in many cultures, uh, people are more, they aspire more to the success of the family. And so the idea of the firstborn, it represents the whole future and well-being and prosperity of the family. And so like in that culture, if, if someone, if a member of the family failed or succeeded, the whole family would identify with that because their identity was rooted in the family identity. It wasn't individualistic like our culture is. And so the firstborn was everything. To kill the firstborn was not just to murder a child. That would be bad enough. But it was like the death of hope because the firstborn meant everything to the family. That's why God says there will be a great cry throughout Egypt like there has never been and there never will be again. This is a devastating judgment. You can't read this without thinking to yourself. I mean, if you're honest, how is this okay? Why does God, why is it okay that God is going to do this terrible thing? That's a really hard question. I wish you hadn't asked it. Um, it's hard because of this. Look, there are answers to that question that make sense of things. But no amount of answers changes how difficult it is emotionally to accept those answers. Right, so with, with that tension in mind, let's just kind of look at the context, see if we can just get a little bit of help here. We've already said this, but in Exodus 1, Egypt is oppressing Israel. They're forcing them into slave labor. Uh, Israel grows as a nation in spite of their burden, and Pharaoh feels threatened, and so he orders the death of every firstborn male in Egypt, I mean in Israel. And so, just as, you know, Israel cried out for help, God says here, Egypt will cry out. It's the same word. And so, just in the sense of like justice, you know, getting what you deserve, uh, this is a just judgment. They killed the firstborn of, of God, really, and the firstborn of Israel. Israel cried out, and so now the firstborn of Egypt will die, and they will cry out. It's one for one. So rationally, there's like a justice that you can see here. Emotionally, there's, there's another thing happening here. Pharaoh is holding captive God's sons and daughters, his children. If you're a dad, this is Father's Day. If you're a dad and someone's holding captive your children and they won't let them go and you've warned them and you've warned them and you've, and you've executed judgment and they still won't do it, wouldn't you go to any length to get your kids back? Should God be any different? And he does so righteously. The judgment of God is, is difficult. I mean, it is hard to come to grips with. But here's, here's two things that we just sort of need to fundamentally come to grips with when we think about the God's judgment. The first one is this. We want judgment to be real. Like we want a God who is just. We want oppression and slavery and murder to go punished. We don't want it to go free. 
We may struggle to understand God on a passage like this, but at the end of the day, we must affirm that God is just and we want him to be. The Israelites wanted God to execute justice on Egypt, and that's what God says he's doing. I am executing justice on Egypt and their gods. Here's the second thing. We want God to be just. We want judgment to be real, but we also have to come to grips that we all deserve this judgment. Why do I say that? Well, right after God says in in 12.12, Exodus 12.12, he says, I'm executing judgment on all of Egypt's gods. Right after that, you, you notice that God is going to go out through all the land of Egypt. The destroyer, this angel of death that's coming, is going to go to every door, every household in Egypt, including Goshen, where the Israelites live. And so, why is Israel subject to this judgment? Because they're not innocent. They're oppressed, yes, but that doesn't mean they're innocent before God. Uh, In Exodus 5, you see evidence of it. When Moses comes to them and he tells them of what God's going to do, and it just starts to take longer than they want it to, and they rebuke Moses, and they doubt God's promise. Later in Joshua, we'll see that uh, they actually have with them some of the idols that they brought from Egypt. And so God, while God is executing just justice against Egypt's gods, they're like hiding the idols of Egypt and they're taking them with them. So they're doubters. They have unbelief. They're idolaters. They're not innocent. Here's the second thing um, going on here. There's going to be a judgment day at the end of time when everyone will stand before God. And no one will be able to stand because, this is what Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. We're all guilty. And so just because I'd said this, Exodus is what's happening to Israel, but it's also a picture of what's going to happen for everyone. And in this 10th plague, it is like God has brought that judgment day into the present, just for one night, just a temporary glimpse of what is to come for everyone. And so just as Israel is subject to this plague, God is saying, everyone will stand before me and everyone will be guilty. That's the just judgment of God. And his judgment comes because of sin, independence, rebellion against God. What they need is a way to deal with the guilt of their sin, and that's what God gives them. In his mercy, God makes a provision. He makes a way for them to deal with their guilt, with their sin. Look what he tells them to do in chapter 12. Here we begin to see the mercy of God. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So like, just like in the middle of the year, God is saying, No, year starts over now. This is now the first month of the year. And he's just giving them clarity around this is a new beginning for Israel. It is a final judgment against Egypt, but it is a new beginning for Israel because this is how salvation works. Death gives way to life. Mercy always comes against the backdrop of judgment. So what do they have to do? How do they get this new beginning? Verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb 
according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. In other words, if you don't have that many people in your family, you can figure out, okay, one lamb will feed both of these houses and that'll work. Verse five, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. All right, so to avoid, to escape the just judgment of God, they have to sacrifice a lamb. And again, I know that sounds really strange, probably even offensive to some of you. But to understand what was happening with them, you just have to realize that animal sacrifice was a very common form of worship. When, when Moses said, we got to take them out for the sacrifice, that made sense to Pharaoh, it made sense to Israel, because this was just common. All right. What's important for us is to notice what kind of lamb. Notice the details here. You're to select the lamb on the 10th day of the month. One lamb for a household. The lamb has to be without blemish. Keep it till the 14th day of the month. And on that day, the whole assembly will kill their lambs at the same time, at twilight, at three o'clock in the afternoon. More than that, they shall take some of the blood, verse 7, of the lamb, and they'll put it on the two doorposts beside the door and on the lintel above the door frame. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire. Don't be boiling this thing. Don't grill it. Roast it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs that they shall eat it. I mean, why? Why such detail? Because God's trying to teach. So when, if you have to roast the lamb, it means the whole thing has to stay intact which is important later. The bitter herbs were to remind them of their bitter service under the hand of Pharaoh. The unleavened bread just means they didn't have time to to bake it properly, which is is going to speak to the haste with which they're going to have to flee Egypt when it comes time. This is what they had to do. They'd sinned against God. They were guilty before God. And God was giving them a way to deal with their sin. Kill the lamb, apply the blood. That's what they had to do. Now, why is the blood so important? This is a question I get. My mom asked me this one time. Why all the focus on blood? That's kind of gross. Well, in Bible and in life, blood is a symbol of life. The shedding of blood means that a life has been taken. And this is, this is a, a story that is told throughout the scriptures very quickly. In Genesis 3, or in Genesis 1 and 3, God said to Adam, look, if you eat of the fruit, if you sin, you're going to die. There'll be blood. And when they do, God, to preserve them and to deal with the effects of sin, has to sacrifice an animal to make clothing for them. So as early as Genesis 3, the blood of an animal is sacrificed, is shed for them, for God's people. In Genesis 22, God comes to Abraham and he says, offer up Isaac, your only son. And the reason Abraham doesn't put up a fight is because he knows God has claim on all the firstborn. They belong to him. He doesn't like it, but he has nothing to say about it. So he takes Isaac to, to sacrifice him. And God there provides a ram to be, to be a substitute for Isaac. And the ram's blood is shed and Isaac lives. In Exodus, in Exodus 12, that we're looking at, Israel's guilty. God has the right to their firstborn. He could let this plague fall on them, just like he lets it fall on Egypt, but he makes a provision. Kill the lamb. Put the blood on the doorposts of your house. And in Exodus 12, 13, he tells them, 
the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. So it's a sign for them. They've done what God said. They put the blood on the doorposts. It's a sign for them that they have made amends. They've atoned for their sin in some way. And then he says, and when I see the blood, see, it'll be a sign for him too. God will come and see the blood and see that propitiation has been made. A sacrifice has been made. The penalty has been paid. And he says, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so Israel is covered and protected by the blood. But it's only temporary. It worked that night. But it's temporary. That's why the nation of Israel makes these sacrifices from this point on every year. For centuries, Israel made this Passover sacrifice millions of times. Yet not all the blood in the world could cover their sin. The issue isn't that they need more blood. The issue is that they need a more precious blood. When the New Testament talks about the meaning of Jesus' death for sin, they they really focus on the blood. You can see it everywhere, but here's a few examples Romans 5, 9 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and now we've been justified by his blood. Ephesians says, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. 1 Peter 1, 18, Peter says, you were ransomed, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without spot or blemish. Do you see how focused they are on the necessity of blood? Because the wages of sin is death, there will be blood. Just as the lamb was a substitute for Israel's firstborn, Jesus is a substitute for us. His blood was shed so that we can be saved. John Stott says it this way. The concept of substitution lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. He says, we put ourselves where only God deserves to be. And God puts himself where we deserve to be. The mercy of God. Can you imagine just what it would have been like that night if you lived in Goshen? If you were an Israelite family and God had said, okay, on the 10th day of this month, here's how you escape this plague. Go out and select a lamb. So as soon as God says it, you want to start working, right? You want to get, like, get it prepared, but you got to wait till the 10th day. I don't know how long it was, but they wait. And on the 10th day, you, you go out. I'm sure the dad and the kids and whoever, because we've got we to find a lamb without spot or blemish. I don't know how long it would take to inspect and look. I mean, you've got to make sure this is the very best lamb that you've got. Then you bring that lamb into your house for four days. It becomes your pet. You spend time with an animal that long, you start, you know, you get a little fond of it. Even, even a lamb. We went out to Tandem Farm. Todd and I took Holden and, and uh, Sophie out to the farm a while back, and they have these sheep. One of them's name is Joseph. That's your first problem. Don't name an animal that you're going to, like, kill, all right? Joseph was pretty sweet, though. He's kind of the leader of the, of the pack. 
he was the only sheep he would come up and eat out of your hand. And, and Holden and Sophie just love Joseph immediately. There's one point where Holden was kind of standing close to Joseph, and I don't know what's going through his brain, but he just jumps on the back of him. And Joseph just takes off, and, right, and Holden gets flung off on the ground, and he's just laughing. And for like the next hour, all of us, me and Todd included, are chasing Joseph around trying to corner him so we can get, like, put our kids on this lamb. Right? I would imagine that's what's happening. No doubt the kids are like, oh, we got a little lamb. And they're playing with it. It's becoming part of the family. There's a reason for that. God, I think, wants them. And the firstborn, this would not be lost on him. He would identify with that lamb. It's a substitute. As the kids are enjoying the lamb, I think the tension is mounting with the parents over these few days. Imagine all the questions they must have. Like, wait, how is this going to go down? Nothing like this has ever happened. And have we done enough? I mean, we okay? Then the 14th day comes. Felt like they should be doing something. But again, God said, don't sacrifice the lamb until 3 p.m. And so they wait. I would have been restless. I would have been like looking for something to do to make sure we were going to be okay. But only God could make things okay. So at three, they slaughter the lamb. They drain the blood into the basin. They take a hyssop branch. They dip it in and they go out to the front porch. I mean, they'd never done this before. This is weird. Put the blood on the doorposts, above the door on the lintel, and then they go inside. And they're not allowed to come out till tomorrow morning. So they go in and they prepare the meal as God had said and they, they try to explain to the kids what they're doing and, without freaking them out. And they eat the meal. Then what? I mean, the destroyer's not going to come till about midnight, so they got some time to kill. What do you do? You put the kids to bed? Do you clean the house? Do you pray? I mean, what do you do? Whatever they did, I would imagine that as midnight came near, Wherever those kids were, they went and got them. Get the kids. And I, I imagine they're just huddling up in the corner of a house somewhere like we would do if there was like a tornado warning. Just waiting for that terrible thing to come. Praying, begging for God's protection. Every household in Goshen is doing this on that night. And all over the land, there's wailing and crying. I don't know if they could hear it. Um, but can you imagine how haunting of a sound that would be? Every household in Egypt, somebody's dead. God said he would pass over them. But as you're sitting in that huddle, you're thinking it's, it's hard to trust. I mean, I don't know if we've done everything just right. I don't know. I mean, the only thing standing between the destroyer and my child is that blood on the door. Will it, will it be enough? Is that really going to work? You know you would have some doubts. You see, but the efficacy of the blood is not in the strength of faith of the person. It's just in the blood itself. But they don't know that. So they wait and they wonder. They keep thinking and hoping and trusting about this blood. And when the destroyer comes to the door, he's on a mission from God to execute judgment. And the orders are clear. The wages of sin is death. He comes to bring death. His name is the destroyer. And when he comes to the door at Israelite home, he sees the blood. And it says to him, there are people here who heard that they could be saved through the blood of a lamb. 
And the blood on the door is evidence of their faith. A sacrifice has been made in this house. Atonement has been made. The penalty has been paid. And the destroyer leaves. God passes over that house. There's no death there. Can you imagine the next morning? It worked. (laughs) The blood worked. It worked. We're safe. Praise God. He's been merciful to us. That's how you know you've experienced the gospel. You have felt the weight and the terror of the just judgment of God that you deserve. And you know the joy of his mercy toward you in Christ. How can you experience the gospel today, anew, for the first time? Well, you look to the Lamb. There was a great preacher in the first century. His name was John the Baptist. He was a wild man. He was so good that tons of people followed him. So many people followed him that the religious leaders of the day came to him and they were like, hey, are you, are you the Messiah? And he's like, no, no, no. No, absolutely not. The Messiah is so much greater than me, but he is coming. I've just been sent to announce him. And when he comes, I'll let you know. And the next day, after they asked him this question, John the Baptist is sitting there with his disciples and this man comes walking toward them and he, it's Jesus and he knows this is the Messiah. This is the one. And so John's getting ready to make his announcement. This is like the whole purpose of his existence. And what does he say? How does he announce the long-awaited Savior? He says, listen, y'all, look. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For thousands of years, ever since Exodus 12, Israel had been offering up a sacrificial lamb to God to atone for their sin. And John is saying, forget about your lambs. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The the story has been going this way all along. So in Genesis 22, God provides one sacrifice, a lamb for one man, Isaac. In Exodus 12, God provides a sacrificial lamb for a household. In Leviticus, we begin to see that there is one lamb offered up for the sins of the nation. And now with John, we see that Jesus has come, the Lamb of God, whom all the other lambs are pointing to, and he is offered up as a sacrifice for the sin of the world. It's a hard thing for the disciples to grasp. Even over three years, they didn't get it because they wanted the Messiah to lead them in victorious battle. They wanted the Messiah to be the Lion of Judah, which he will be. But first... He's the Lamb of God. The night before his death, Jesus was eating a meal with his disciples. It was the Passover meal. Everybody was observing the Passover meal. Probably like 200,000 Jews had made the journey into Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire to partake in this feast in Jerusalem. And so... Just like all over the city, Jesus was having that meal that night. And in all over the city, what would happen is the father of the house would get up and he would preside over the meal. And he would explain what they're doing and why they're doing it. And he would take some bread and he would break it and he would say, this is the bread of affliction that our fathers suffered. 
in Egypt. And then he would take a cup of wine, and the wine represented the wrath and judgment of God against sin. And, and he, would, he would call out each of the ten plagues, and every time he did it, he would shake the cup, and some of the wine would spill out. It was like the, the blood of God's judgment spilling. And then he would talk about the lamb. He would tell them that this, their fathers ate of this lamb because it was a, an offering to the Lord. And because of the lamb, that God passed over their houses the night that he struck Egypt. This is the meal that Jesus presided over that night with his disciples. But when he explained it, there was a little twist. When they're at the table, Jesus picks up the bread. And he looks at his disciples and he says, This bread is my body. Take and eat. The bread is no longer the affliction of Israel at the hand of Pharaoh. The bread is Jesus' affliction, his suffering that he's about to endure on the cross. And then, just like every father that night, Jesus held up a cup of wine and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take, drink of it, all of you. The wine is no longer the blood of God's judgment against Egypt. Jesus is saying, the judgment of God is about to fall upon me. My blood will be shed for the forgiveness of sins. And just like this table here, the disciples would have noticed at that table then that something was missing. If you read the gospel accounts of that meal, you see that there's something really wrong here. There's no lamb. Where's the lamb? The lamb is presiding over the meal. Jesus is saying what John said. I am the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And look what kind of lamb he is. Remember all the details about the Passover lamb? Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the 10th day of the month. It was the same day that all the Passover lambs would have been driven in to the city for the Passover feast. So Jesus was with them about, well, exactly four days before he was crucified. He was a spotless lamb without blemish. Peter says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. But it's not just his boy, Pilate. The one judging him, the one who gave him up the crucifixion said, I find no guilt in him. John goes through the pains of, of telling us that when the soldiers came to Jesus on the cross, after they had broken the legs of the, of the people next to him, they came to him and they found that he was already dead and they didn't break his bones. And that's one of the details we get in Exodus. You have to roast the lamb, can't break its bones. He's the perfect, spotless lamb. On the 14th day of the month, Jesus was nailed to the cross. Then at 3 p.m., when all over the city, fathers would have been standing up, offering with their families, and they would have been saying, God has provided a lamb for us. And over at the temple, all of the high priests were on duty, getting ready to sacrifice a lamb. And over at the cross, the lamb of God His blood was flowing for the forgiveness of sins. And at 3 p.m., he said, I'm finished. Behold the Lamb of God.
Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.